Welcome to episode two of the Inside Elections podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven, and accessible way. In this episode, how will the latest recruits impact Republican chances of winning the Senate majority? How could a competitive Democratic primary affect the party's ability to flip a House seat in Oregon? What 2002 pop anthem is poised to rock a special election in New England? And hear how I'm coping with yet another favorite player leaving one of my favorite teams. Here we go. Hello, I'm Nathan Gonzalez, and I went to college in California's 47th district. I'm Jacob Rubashkin, and I went to college in New York's 19th district. Hey, everyone. I'm Erin Covey, and I went to college in Virginia's 6th district. And where was that college, Erin? Uh, it's called Liberty University. You may have heard of it. Maybe. And, and how'd that go? It was mixed. Story for another podcast. <laughs> there we go. Uh, Jacob, and you are a Cornell grad. Where Remind folks where Cornell is. It is in uh, sunny Ithaca, New York, uh, in the Finger Lakes, in the southern tier of, of the state, if you want to get super specific. That's pretty specific. And, and the officially unofficial mascot is a bear. Are there bears in, on campus roaming? So there are no bears on campus that I had the pleasure of running into, um, but uh, Touchdown the Bear uh, is our uh, official unofficial mascot. Um uh, no longer a real bear, but uh, back in the day, I believe in the early 20th century, there was a a true bear uh, that they kept on a leash and brought out to football games. So um, I don't think they do that anymore. But uh, <laughs> well, we don't have any touchdown. We, we didn't have any bears, but I went to Vanguard University in Orange County, California. We will probably be talking about that district later because it is host to one of the more competitive open house seats in the country. Before we discuss our big three stories of the week, what's one important news development that folks should not miss? Uh, Jacob, go first. So I actually broke some news uh, today, or if you're listening tomorrow, yeah, than, than uh, yesterday, uh, about a uh, congressional race in Virginia's second district. Democrat Missy Cotter Smazel, who was a state Senate nominee and is a Navy veteran, uh, has brought on some uh, top consultants for, in anticipation of launching a campaign for Congress against Republican incumbent. Jen Kiggins, uh, this district should be one of the most competitive congressional races in the country next year. And Virginia's second district is based in? Virginia Beach. Uh, so it's a very uh, heavily uh, military and, and veteran community there. Uh, the previous Democratic Congresswoman, Elaine Luria, a former Navy commander, Jen Kiggins, also a Navy veteran, I believe. So uh, Scott Taylor, uh, the representative before Elaine Luria, uh, retired Navy SEAL. So uh, plenty, plenty of uh, military history in this district and, and a strong recruit for Democrats if she does indeed uh, go through with this bid. Aaron, what's a news development folks shouldn't miss? Yeah, so there were quite a few um, developments in House races today, um, today being Wednesday, July 5th. Um, but I would say one of the biggest news items that came out today was that Mondaire Jones, 
who used to represent New York's 17th district, is running again for Congress. Um, and he won't be alone in that Democratic primary. He's going to be running against Gretchen Whitmer's sister, actually, um, who lives in the Hudson Valley, which is where New York 17th is. Um, and then whoever wins that primary will have one of the most competitive House races in the country on their hands. And they'll be running against Congressman Mike Lawler, who is a Republican who just flipped the district last year. And in Washington state, former Republican Congressman Dave Reichert filed to run for governor next year. Uh, Reichert still might be best known as the King County Sheriff who helped catch the Green River Killer. He was then elected to Congress, represented, excuse me, represented a Seattle area district, and Democrats could not defeat him. It was a competitive district and they just could not crack the code. He eventually uh, left Congress, didn't run for re-election. He hasn't been on the ballot in, in, in office in at least five years. He's one of those people who's rumored to run every couple of years for something, but it looks like he's taking the plunge, giving Republicans one of their best recruits for governor uh, in a race that they haven't won since 1980. So that'll be a top race to watch. The Inside Elections podcast is sponsored by George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, or GSPM. The GSPM program offers master's degrees in legislative affairs and political management with in-person and online class schedules designed for the working professional. The GSPM program is not just a sponsor. I am also a graduate, and it was great for me because I could work full-time analyzing elections with what was the Rothenberg Political Report at the time and take classes at night and get the master's degree uh, that I was looking for. So please click on the link, click in the chatter, and check out what the GSPM program has to offer. Let's dive into our top three stories. Story number one, Republican recruitment and the fight for the Senate. I will never forget how I felt on 9-11. That fateful day motivated me to serve our nation as a Navy SEAL. I met my wife in the military and we both served in Afghanistan. After our service, Carmen and I moved to Montana to start a business and raise our family. Together, we built one of the largest aerial firefighting companies in America, created over 200 Montana jobs and started a veteran-led cattle ranching and feeding operation. I'm Tim Sheehy. Whether it was in war or business, I see problems and solve them. America needs conservative leaders who love our country. And that's why I'm running for the United States Senate. That was Tim Sheehy, the latest Republican candidate uh, to get into the Montana Senate race. Um, after primaries and weak nominees torpedoed Republican chances of winning the Senate in 2002, the National Republican Senatorial Committee signaled it would be more engaged and involved this cycle in order to get stronger nominees and avoid primaries altogether. So I know it's still early, Nathan, but how is that working out so far? It doesn't seem like it's working well. <laughs> uh, I mean, in the top three states, uh, the top three Republican takeovers that that they're that they're eyeing: Ohio, West Virginia, and Montana. It looks like they're going to be a competitive primary in each of those. Sheehy just got into Montana. A lot of Republicans wanted him, but now Republican Congressman Matt Rosendale is still signaling that he wants to get in. He's been he's being encouraged by Club for Growth. West Virginia. Jacob's written a lot about West Virginia and Governor Jim Justice and Congressman Alex Mooney facing off there. And then Ohio, Aaron, that you're covering where there's going to be at least a three-person primary, right? I mean, maybe a four-person primary. So 
That doesn't mean that the NRSE shouldn't try, but it looks like, or that primaries will be at fault for hurting their chances, but it doesn't look like they're avoiding primaries. Right. And I think it's important to remember that when we're having this discussion about um, strong recruits and how that affects these competitive races on the Republican side, even if Republicans do have strong recruits in each of these states, if they have a competitive primary they have to get through, they're probably going to have to take stances anyway that are out of step with the median voter in their states or districts. So um, with some of these newer candidates who are more untested, like Sheehy, it'll be interesting to see how they navigate that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that to the extent we can measure how successful Republican leadership has been this cycle, it really is a two-part process that they're trying to implement here, right? It's first getting the candidates that they want to run to run in these highly competitive states, and then also making sure or trying to ensure that they don't have competitive primaries. If we look at last cycle's candidates, we talked a lot about kind of how bad Republican candidates uh, won those primaries. But the reality was there were very few stellar Republican candidates in those primaries. If you look at a place like Arizona, where there was such a massive push to get Governor Doug Ducey to run in Nevada, there was always this question, you know, will former Governor Brian Sandoval run? In Pennsylvania, you had the party's initial choice drop out because of a scandal. Uh, and then two guys who were both out-of-town rich guys come in and duke it out over the nomination. Um, it, so so the they have accomplished at least the first step this cycle of finding the candidates that they wanted to run initially, uh, be that Sheehy or Governor Jim Justice, uh, and getting them into the race. It's just they have not yet eased their path to the nomination. And so they do run the risk in all of these states with the exception, and maybe we can talk about it, of Pennsylvania, um, of of a, a damaging, expensive primary uh, that they have to get through before taking on these very well-established Democratic incumbents. Right. And we're in a situation where the establishment isn't feared or revered anymore. And so if there is a, a, a hand-picked candidate, that almost immediately brings up a candidate that's going to run as the anti-establishment. And there's going to be an appetite for that. We'll see how much of an appetite it, it ends up being in the primary, but that's where past I've been doing this long enough where the NRSC and various regimes has gone back and forth about, well, if we get involved, we're just going to make things worse. So we're like, well, if we don't get involved, things are going to be worse. And it just goes back and forth every cycle. I was just going to say, I think that it it is, um, you know, there's all sorts of internal politics going on here as well, kind of in reaction to what we saw last cycle where, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Nathan, but last cycle it was almost a, a, they were less involved than they had been previously, right? That it really was a, a tenant of, of the NRSC last cycle to let the voters decide. And there was very little willingness to involve themselves at all. And so what you ended up seeing was uh, the McConnell Super PAC you know, the Senate Leadership Fund actually involved itself in some primaries where the NRSC was hands off, thinking specifically about Missouri, which I would say was the Republican establishment's uh, best executed plan last cycle, right? They knew that they had a problem with former Governor Eric Greitens being in strong position to win that nomination. They knew that he would make that race difficult 
not unwinnable, but difficult and expensive in the general election. And so it was the outside Republican groups that came in uh, to torpedo Greitens in the closing weeks of that campaign, uh, not the official committee. And now we're seeing much more uh, synergy between the the official committee and the the Senate leadership fund on on the outside side. Right. So, Aaron, ultimately, do we how will this impact the Senate and maybe take Ohio as a good example? There was a competitive primary in Ohio last cycle. Is it going to be another one this cycle? Is that going to hurt their chances in one of their top three takeover opportunities? Yeah, so that's a good question, Nathan. And Ohio is a really interesting case study, I think, specifically because while we do have a primary shaping up this cycle, as we did last cycle, um, the candidates who are running in the primary, I think, all have different strengths that most Republicans feel pretty good about. So they are less concerned about like one candidate making it through the primary and becoming the nominee. Um, They're more concerned in Ohio about how the actual primary fight will go down um, and how that could, again, like force these candidates to take unpopular positions on whether that's Trump, who will obviously be a top of mind with the presidential race um, or abortion or any of these other issues that are really polarizing and could jeopardize their chances in the general election. Right. Um, and Jacob, we're talking about primaries, but there's also a lack of candidates in some other top opportunities. But with that, with that combination of factors, are we set up? Are is this looking like a similar cycle to last cycle, where Republicans had a great opportunity to win the majority, and they managed to find ways not to do just that? I think that there are similarities and differences, right? The the main difference being that this cycle just structurally is better for Republicans than last cycle because they have very few uh, defensive vulnerabilities, uh, which means Democrats, conversely, have very little margin for error, right? Last cycle, the reason why Democrats were able to expand their Senate majority was because they flipped a seat in Pennsylvania, right? And that was an opportunity. And we knew from the beginning that Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, and to a lesser extent, uh, North Carolina, uh, offered the Democratic Party a chance to go on offense uh, in in a real substantive way uh, that altered the shape of the map. And there really are very few, if any, opportunities for them to do that this time. So uh, Republicans have three shots at flipping a seat. um, And, you know, they need potentially just one and at most two of those three in order to win back the majority, provided that Democrats can't flip any seats of their own. And given that their best shot is winning a seat in Texas, uh, you know, the, the odds are against them. So so I do think that, you know, the specter of of a bad Republican recruitment cycle foiling the party's chances that, at winning the majority is there. I think it's also always been there, right? It's been there since 2010. It's been there since Christine O'Donnell and and Todd Aiken in 2012. This is nothing new. Um, and, and some of those years, you know, they haven't won the majority and, and some of them they have. Right. I didn't know if the specter was a reference to former Pennsylvania Senator Arlen Specter. We'll, <laughs> we'll let that, we'll let that go. But Republicans have more than three opportunities, right? They have three opportunities in Trump uh, in states that Trump won in 2020, but they have the Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, you know, working down to Nevada, Virginia. But uh, but Republicans have, it feels like, have chosen to focus on a very narrow number of very good opportunities. And if things go sideways in the situations that we're talking about, 
then the math starts to get more complicated than it needs to be. Yes. I think there's certainly there's certainly some tunnel vision there for sure. It's a very different strategy than like Democrats in 2020, right? That worked to expand the map to the point where we were talking about Alaska and South Carolina, you know, these races, in addition to Iowa, Montana, all these places getting national attention. And ultimately that strategy paid off because they flipped two seats in Georgia, <laughs> which which was a state that uh, did not look nearly as competitive as some of those other ones uh, at the beginning of the cycle. So uh, yeah, different strategy, a little bit of tunnel vision focused on those three major pickup opportunities. Let's move on. Our second story, high stakes Democratic primary in Oregon. Now I want to make Congress work for folks like us, and I'll take on anyone, even my own party, to fight inflation and price gouging. We'll lower costs on health care and prescription drugs. I'm Jamie McLeod Skinner, and I approve this message because I'll leave Congress better than I found it. So that was Jamie McLeod Skinner, who was the Democratic nominee in Oregon's 5th District last cycle. Um, this was one of the closest House races in the nation. And the Republican, Lori Chavez de Reamer, who won, only won by about 6,000 votes. Um, so this is going to be one of the most competitive House races to watch next year. Um, it's not in California or in New York. So I think it's gotten a little bit less coverage than those um, Republicans who are running in those states. Um, but it's a super interesting race. And unlike in a lot of places, we actually have a couple of Democratic challengers who have announced campaigns here. And we're starting to see what could look like a pretty competitive primary on the Democratic side. So Aaron, where is this district in Oregon? And in addition to Jamie McLeod Skinner, who else is in the mix here? Yeah, so this is um, pretty close to where Nathan grew up, um, so he can describe it a lot more accurately than me. Spoiler but alert. No. <laughs> I will give it my best shot. Um, so this basically stretches from the southern Portland suburbs um, in Clackamas County over um, some farmland and more rural areas and then stretches over the Cascade Mountains into the city of Bend, um, which is a really fast growing city in central Oregon that is home to a lot of outdoor recreational sports and um, is the is where Jamie McLeod Skinner is from, actually. And this was a part of the district that was new to the district after redistricting. Um, and so that was kind of how she was able to win the primary last cycle. Um, it wasn't just that Democrats were frustrated with Kurt Schrader, who had been the congressman in the 5th District for a while, um, for taking positions, moderate positions on issues um, like Democrats' big spending packages, but they were also just unacquainted with him if they were from the central Oregon part of the district. Um, and so that's kind of the basics of the district itself. And then aside from McLeod Skinner, who has not announced a campaign, but um, someone close to her campaign has told me that she is planning to run, and it looks like she is going to have an announcement in the coming weeks, potentially. There are two other Democratic candidates who are in this race, um, both of which are pretty formidable, it looks like. Um, you have Janelle Bynum, who is a state rep in Clackamas County. She um, won one of the most competitive house races, state house races in 2016 in Oregon. Um, and she actually has defeated Chavez de Reamer twice already because um, they ran against each other in that state house race in 2016 and then again in 2018. Um, so she's come out of the gate with some strong endorsements from 
two Oregon Congress members um, and then the Congressional Black Caucus as well. And she also told a local paper that um, Hakeem Jeffries had personally encouraged her to run. So um, it really looks like she's coming out of the gate um, with a really strong campaign. And then you also have Lynn Peterson, who is the president of Metro, um, which is basically a regional government that oversees both Portland and 23 other cities in the Portland area. Um, and she has been involved in local Oregon politics for a long time, held a number of regional elected roles. And she was actually also the Washington Secretary of Transportation right across the river for a couple of years. Um, so she's very well acquainted with the area and some of the local issues there, particularly on the infrastructure side. And then there's Jamie McLeod Skinner, who was the Democratic nominee last cycle. She has run for Congress before back in 2018. She also ran for Secretary of State of Oregon in 2020. And so she is pretty well known in this area at this point since so she's been on the ballot a couple of times. And she definitely starts out as the front runner in this race, um, though based on the fact that Bynum and Peterson have both come out with some strong endorsements. Um, Peterson is actually got the endorsement, got an endorsement from Peter DeFazio, who is a former congressman in Oregon, and then Barbara Roberts, a former governor. Um, we're expecting this race will get a lot more competitive, even if McLeod Skinner does have kind of the initial name ID advantage, as we say. And there's a lot of a lot of feelings about this race because uh, after McLeod Skinner defeated Schrader, kind of ran to his left, and then she lost the general election, the feeling is that she was too liberal or too progressive. So there is the, a desire to get a non-McLeod Skinner candidate, but now you have two credible contenders for that non-McLeod Skinner <laughs> vote, and there's a fear that it divided up. It's also geographic. The McLeod Skinner now has roots in Central Oregon uh, via... Um, her wife's family has is a is a ranching family in Central Oregon, and but yet now you have the two other competitors, Bynum and Peterson, are from the suburban part of the district. So right. there there are multiple there, there's a lot going on here in one of in what should be one of Democrats' best takeover opportunities at a time when they only need a net gain of five in order to win the majority. Yeah, yeah. So like you said, there are quite a few folks in D.C who don't want McLeod Skinner to be the nominee, um, because that's what happens when you run against an incumbent, you make some enemies in DC. Um, but there's also quite a few folks who are based in Oregon who I talked to when I was writing the story, um, who are worried that she is just too progressive, or at least has a too progressive image to defeat Chavez de Reamer, because this is a long time purple part of the state, um, has swung back and forth over the last couple of election cycles. Um, the Republican nominee for governor in Oregon won this district by about five points last cycle, um, but then Biden won it by nine points in 2020. And so it's really demonstrated the ability to swing back and forth um, over the past several years. And a lot of folks think that McLeod Skinner is just too progressive for this kind of district. But um, like Nathan said, because there are two other strong candidates running against her, there's a good chance that they could end up kind of splitting the more moderate lane of the Democratic primary relative to McLeod Skinner. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how this shapes up. And once um, Peterson and Bynum have their fundraising numbers announced, I think we'll get like a better sense of how strong they are. 
So do we think Democrats will win the majority without winning this district? <laughs> it's a good question. I think this is, I think it's fair to say this is a top 10 uh, pickup opportunity for Democrats. Um, we have it in the toss-up category of our House race ratings right now. Um, and, you know, there's so many competitive races in California and New York that it's hard to say whether this one is maybe necessary to winning the majority. But I think that um, if Democrats want to take back the House in 2024, this is definitely a district they will need to spend in. They're going to be probably spending more here this cycle than they did last cycle because there were a couple of other Oregon House seats that were potentially vulnerable that Democrats ended up winning, but that was because they had a lot of um, outside money come in to help them at the last minute. And this district did not get some of that outside um, super PAC spending. So expect to see a lot more spending here. There's also not going to be a competitive governor's race. The presidential race isn't competitive in Oregon. And so this fifth district is really going to be the marquee race. Jacob, what do you think? I think this is a you know, pretty good bellwether district, honestly. I, I think that there are a few places we know Republicans are going to make some gains, places like North Carolina, um, potentially Ohio. There are a few places we, you know, Democrats are, if they play their cards right, are going to make some gains too in, in New York and California. And, and then you end up with districts like this that uh, are, are kind of right at the edge of, of, uh, you know, the majority making. And so uh, I think whoever wins this district uh, is probably doing uh, what they need to do to secure a narrow majority uh, come come 2024. Uh, of course, being uh, Oregon and on the West Coast, and I believe a, a fully vote by mail state. Is that right? Yep, yep absolutely. Um, we may not know. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, maybe the House majority comes down to this race uh, out here on the West Coast. Uh, and and like last year when we didn't know the outcome of the McLeod Skinner Chavez Dreamer uh, race until days, if not weeks, after election day. Yeah, um, because I mean Oregon prides itself in being able to count, <laughs> but there was a uh, we'll just say a fiasco in Clackamas County uh, yeah. counting ballot, so it, it delayed things. Yes, and and Hopefully how many congressional faster. races uh, do we get every cycle with four names among two candidates? There we go. I know we're going to have to get the researchers on that. The researchers being us, I guess. Yeah, this one for the interns. Yeah. All right. Well, thankfully, we'll have a lot more Oregon coverage on this podcast, but let's move on. Our third story pop ballads and the Rhode Island special election. Because you know I'd walk a thousand miles if I So that was notable Rhode Island resident Vanessa Carlton, who made her way downtown to endorse uh, former state representative Aaron Regenberg in the special election to replace uh, Congressman, former Congressman David Cicilline in Rhode Island's first congressional district. Uh, Carlton is just one of many uh, prominent progressives to back Regenberg in this very crowded Democratic primary, uh, which will take place on September 5th. And given how Democratic-leaning uh, Rhode Island's first congressional district is, uh, the winner of that primary is almost certainly going to be uh, the next member of Congress uh, from this district. So maybe the most important question, this song came out in 2002. Do you two know who Vanessa Carlton is? Have you heard of this song? Of course, Nathan. This is an iconic song. I can't name a single other song that she did, but <laughs> everyone knows this song. <laughs> okay, okay. You're not familiar with her whole discography. Unfortunately, no. 
We'll well, she's recently had a career resurgence. You know, she appeared, she took over the role of, of Carol King on Broadway uh, in the Carol King musical Tapestries. So uh, that's given her a bit of a second wind, uh, though I think she's been very successful throughout her career, even if she never recreated the heights of <laughs> A Thousand Miles. So realistically, Jacob, how much clout does she have, especially relative to some of the other folks who have endorsed candidates in this primary? Yeah, so this is an incredibly crowded race. You'd need uh, all of your limbs just to count the number of Democrats who are in this primary field. Uh, Look, I think that um, any endorsement that's going to get you headlines is a useful one. I will say that Uh, Since she moved to Rhode Island, Vanessa Carlton has been involved in kind of the environmental community there. Uh, She did host a fundraiser for him. She obviously has, uh, you know, a good network. Uh, But look, I think that the better uh, news for Regenberg is that he has really been working hard to consolidate uh, progressive validators uh, throughout the state and the country. Uh, So it's not just Vanessa Carlton, but it's Congressman Jamie Raskin. Uh, from my home state of Maryland, who is a, an icon on the liberal left. It's the CWA union. Uh, it is our revolution. It's the Rhode Island Working Families Party uh, that that have all come together to back Regenberg. And the more of those indicators he can amass to distinguish himself as the progressive option in the state, I think the stronger his hand is going to be. Because ultimately, uh, he does have more of a narrow pathway to victory given uh, the politics of the state, a slightly more conservative Democratic Party than you might find elsewhere, uh, certainly in New England, but in any kind of state that votes as heavily Democratic. Uh, So if he can establish himself in that way in the primary, uh, he's got a very good shot at uh, making a real run for it against some of the other candidates in the field. And who are who would be the other? Uh, well, there are twenty eight total candidates. Who would be the other top? Well, let's pick two. <laughs> so I think there are 20, 22 Democrats who ultimately are going to make it on the ballot. Uh, I'll list them all off. Uh, we'll see how quickly I can do it. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Sabina Matos, State Senators Sandra Cano and Anna Kizada. Uh, Former Gina Raimondo aides Gabe Amo and Nick Autiello, state representatives Marvin Abney and Spencer Casey, former state representative uh, Spencer Dickinson, Providence City Councilman John Goncalves, uh, and former chief of staff to Connecticut Congressman Jim Himes, Donald Carlson, uh, make up kind of the the notable Democrats. I I think it's pretty clear the front runner, uh, as as far as one exists, is the lieutenant governor, Sabina Matos. but, uh, you know, Democrats in the state point to her, Regenberg, uh, Gabe Amo, who was also a, a former Biden administration official, Otiello, the former uh, Raimondo aide, um, and State Senator Sandra Cano as, as the ones to watch to potentially make a run here uh, in, in this crowded race. Uh, and I will say, you know, in, in Nick Otiello's defense, uh, while Aaron Reckenberg has the coveted Vanessa Carlton endorsement, Otiello has uh, perhaps uh, an equally valuable or more so given the demographics of the primary electorate uh, endorsement from Barry Manilow. Uh, so on. is that real? You're just making, you're just making that up. Uh, no, no, That's Barry real? Manilow. Uh, Barry Manilow uh, is, is apparently a longtime friend of Nick Otiello wrote him a max out check uh, in the primary. So uh, who knew that Rhode Island was such a hotbed of, um, you know, musical talent, but uh, 
Look, I think this is a this is a a crazy race with a ton of candidates and uh, several of whom have have viable paths to victory. It's going to come down to who can raise the money uh, to get on TV, get their name ID up, get their message out ahead of that primary. And uh, there's not much time left because absentee ballots go out starting in mid-August. And because there's no runoff in Rhode Island, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So the the winner with that large of a field, the winner could win this nomination, which is the most important race with, I don't know, 20, 20%, 25%. And so how, what races can we remember where, uh, you know, the lowest percentage winning percentage for a, a primary candidate who went on to be a member of Congress? What, what comes to mind? So Diana Harshberger, who is the congresswoman from Tennessee's first congressional district, uh, first one election in 2020, uh, she won her primary. I think there were 16 people there total in the Republican primary. She won it with uh, 19.2%, which I believe is the current uh, record for a, a sitting member of Congress. Uh, but I think the historical record and one that is not likely to fall anytime soon uh, belongs to Michigan, uh, former Michigan, now long deceased, but Michigan Congressman uh, John Dingle Sr., who in 1932 won a 27 person primary in Detroit uh, with 14% of the vote. Uh, I think it was something like 4,000 votes total that he won in that 1932 race. And of course, that kick-started a, a political dynasty in the Dingle family that has held continuous control of, of a congressional seat in Michigan uh, for the last 90 years. Do you remember that race, Nathan? Uh, yeah, I, I was actually going to. <laughs> it was actually 1884, if um, I correct the record. Uh, okay. race. So yeah, yeah, I was. I interviewed John Dingle Senior, uh, and it was one of one of the more memorable interviews we did. <laughs> um, all right, now pop quiz. Let's turn the table here. Pop quiz. What major U.S. city is either a thousand miles to the west of Rhode Island or a thousand miles to the south of Rhode Island without looking it up and Googling it right now on your computer. What is a thousand miles either West or South? I'll accept either answer. Miami. I feel like South. <laughs> south is the middle of the Atlantic ocean. Well, uh, come down 95, <laughs> come down 95. Or, um, yeah. Not Miami. Not that far. That's not, it's, it's, it's less than that. Okay. Ra- Raleigh. All right. We have to, this is only a four hour podcast. So, um, you got, I think you get, you go to Atlanta or Chicago, I think a thousand miles, a thousand miles from Rhode Island, but we'll have to have Vanessa Carlton check us, uh, fact check us on that. All right, let's, let's move on. And finally, our last segment, Look What I Found, where we highlight something new we've stumbled across. It could be political, sports, music, or something else entirely. You just don't know what you're going to get from this segment. Jacob, what did you find? So I found a book called Empire of Sin. It's by Gary Christ. It is a history of New Orleans uh, around the turn of the 20th century. It's got a little bit of everything. It's got jazz, sex, murder, politics, and uh, more than a few parallels to uh, some events of the modern era. And best of all, I got it for free at the DC Public Library. 
Which kind and of I am not... parallels? Oh, go ahead, Nate. <laughs> go ahead. I said, and I am not going to ask you for bedtime reading for my kids. But Aaron, what do you? <laughs> I, I I think that um, the the one that really stood out to me was uh, there's an early scene of a a riot that takes place following a disputed um, jury verdict in a in a high profile criminal trial uh, in which many uh, members of high society whip up a mob that they uh, then send uh, to to the local county jail, resulting in a number of deaths. And uh, many of those leaders of the mob went on to hold uh, significant positions of power um, in in the New Orleans city government for decades to come. Aaron, what did you find? So I found out earlier today um, that a island in Greece that I'm actually going to next week is doing an outdoor showing of Mamma Mia, which is so perfect. Um, so they're really leaning into it. I think part of the movie was actually filmed on this island or maybe a neighboring island. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. It like overlaps perfectly when I'm going to be there. And have you seen the movie and the show on the Broadway show or is this, are you coming in fresh? <laughs> no, I, I've seen the movie several times. I have not seen the Broadway show, um, but yeah, I'm excited. All right. And I found uh, a new way to root for to to be a sports fan. (laughs) Uh, For those of you following the Portland Trailblazers, it looks like they're about to trade Damian Lillard. This will be yet another favorite player of mine on a favorite team. We won't mention Russell Wilson and the Seahawks or Bryce Harper and the Nationals leaving. And so I've had to adjust how I think about this. So I'm trying to find players to root for for reasons other than the jersey they're wearing. So right now there's a, a Baltimore Orioles catcher named Adley Rutschman. Shocker, he grew up in Oregon, close to where I did, went to Oregon State. Uh, and so, and I'm wearing a Bowie Bay Sox uh, Adley Rutschman shirt for those of you not watching on YouTube. And so, no matter which team he ends up rooting for or playing for, uh, there's a, a reason to root for him. Uh, he seems like a good kid. So, that's, I, I'm going through, I've, I've done enough grieving over these players leaving these teams. That's all the time we have. We got smarter about Republican chances of taking back the Senate, how a critical primary in Oregon affects Democratic chances in the House, and got to talk about an iconic song in the context of a Rhode Island special election. And it's all in the context of a very competitive 2024 election with the majorities and the White House on the line. Thank you for joining us. At Inside Elections, we provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional, presidential, and gubernatorial races. With a combination of reporting and data, we break down the races and bring valuable context to complex elections. Go to InsideElections.com to subscribe to the biweekly newsletter. We have individual subscriptions as well as group packages that are tailor-made for association and corporate packs. In case you're not familiar with what happens if you like a podcast, you're supposed to subscribe or you're supposed to click the thumbs up on YouTube. Follow us, leave a comment. We want to see all of those things. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, again, we, we need those subscribers. Uh, if you don't like today's episode, but you want to take a chance again on us, please email Barry Manilow. We also want to thank our producers, Alan Tazinski and Melissa Lenner of Pretty Easy Podcasts and associate producer Conrad Tolosa. Please come back and join us again next time. <laughs>